Hi everybody, welcome to New Hope Community Church. My name is Ian Buckley and today we begin our focus on the life of Elisha. Now Elisha is one of the lesser known prophets. I say that even though his ministry lasted for 60 years. Now most of us have already heard of his mentor Elijah who is very well known. The fiery Elijah confronted and exposed idolatry in Israel. He's the guy that helped shape a country where people could freely and publicly worship God. However, Elisha's ministry follows and demonstrates God's powerful yet caring nature to all who came to him for help. Now, Elisha spent less time in conflict with evil and more in compassionate care of people. Actually, the Bible records 18 individual encounters between Elisha and people who are in need. One of the interesting facts about Elisha is he asked God for a double portion of his master's spirit. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. The Bible says, When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Well, actually, Elijah did 14 miracles and Elisha did 28. He got exactly what he asked for. He performed twice as many miracles as his mentor. So as we dive into this amazing prophet, I want to share with you a little bit about why Elisha is so significant and why we're going to take a few weeks to study his life. Let's start by looking at Elisha's character. Let's look at his character. See, Elisha was born in the 9th century B.C., Think about that, 9th century BC. He was the son of a very wealthy farmer in the Jordan Valley, south of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of time, Sea of Galilee. Now, the prophets in those days had been under a ton of pressure because that wicked witch Jezebel was out to get them all and destroy them. And you recall earlier this year, I talked a little bit about Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. Now, the prophets, though, had gathered together, and over time, Elisha had become their leader. Now, what we see is that there's a school of prophets, and they were spread out all over the area. And it was a place where young men training for the ministry came to learn how to do the work of the ministry. Now, one of the reasons why Elisha was so effective, and this starts to enumerate a number of his characteristics, was because he was compassionate. Now, often when you read in the Bible, you see miracles that are used to get people back on track with God, to make a point for the power of God. But almost all of Elisha's miracles were done out of compassion. For example... He, number one, would be he purified a, the, a polluted spring so that the people of Jericho could drink fresh water. That's a great thing to do. That's kind. He provided financial resources for a widow 
so that she could pay her debts. That's another compassionate type of miracle. He asked God, thirdly, to grant a son to a barren Shunammite woman. But then the son got sick and he died. But Elisha again showed compassion. He returned and God used him to raise that son from the dead. He also purified a deadly pot of stew. And he multiplied loaves and grain so that people could have food in the time of famine. And possibly the most famous example would be he healed the commander of a foreign army by the name of Naaman, who was affected with leprosy. That would be like the equivalent stigma of AIDS back 30 years ago. So compassion and the well-being of other people were super important to Elisha and were prevalent throughout his ministry. So in that respect, he was much different to Elijah. Elijah's uh, miracles were statements. Elisha's miracles, on the other hand, were done to help people and to show the compassion of God to people. He was also... Secondly, he was also very courageous. He was compassionate, but he wasn't a coward. He spoke truth to power. And here are a couple of accounts from the scriptures out of his life. Elisha was known throughout the land to advise the king of Israel. And one memorable incident is when he tells the king of Israel about the enemy's movements. This enemy was trying to plunder Israel. And God used Elisha to forewarn Israel's king about their impending movements. Now, when the king of Aram, which is modern-day Syria, his name was Ben-Hadad, found out that it was Elisha that was foiling his plans, he sent He hatched a plot and he sent a huge army with many chariots and horses to surround and capture Elisha at Dothan, which is where he was living. Now, that kind of had Elisha's servant Gehazi worried one morning when he woke up from his sleep. He looked out the window and there was this host of soldiers on, on horses and they were ready to attack and they'd surrounded them. But then I love how the scripture records the question that Gehazi says in 2 Kings 6.15. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried out to Elisha. So Gehazi spies all these enemies and panics. Look at Elisha's response in 2 Kings 6, verse 16 through 17. He says, don't be afraid. How many times do we hear that in scripture? Don't be afraid. Elisha told them, for there are more on our side than on theirs. I'm sure about right now, the young man was thinking, okay, where are they? (laughs) 17. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. You probably remember a a movie by that name. Now, as the army advances towards Gehazi and Elisha, Elisha asked the Lord to make them blind 
Interestingly, open his servant's eyes, but blind the eyes of the enemy. And the Lord answered. So Elisha and his servants were delivered when the Lord struck the enemy blind. Fascinating story to read. Now, when you face difficulties that seem insurmountable, remember this, that God has resources, infinite resources, that are there even if you can't see them. So we need to look with the eyes of faith and let God show you his resources. On another occasion, Elisha refused, and I love this example, to cater to a powerful commander named Naaman. See, after God had healed him, this is Naaman of leprosy, through Elisha, Naaman did what most people would have done in those days, offered Elisha a gift. Now, this is a real test of a man of God. Can he be bought? Answer, no way. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 16. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. So he was a very courageous man. He stood firm in the middle of difficult times, as we're going to see going forward. Not only today, but in the weeks ahead. So Elisha refused Naaman's money to show that God's favor cannot be purchased. No way. Now, our money, like Naaman's, is useless when we face death. No matter how much wealth we accumulate during this brief journey of life, it will all completely evaporate when we stand before God, our Creator. Now, our faith in Jesus Christ will save us, and that alone not our bank accounts. They won't matter a hell of beans. Coming back to Elisha's attribute of courage. I love what Billy Graham said. He says, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spine of those around him are stiffened. So Elisha was like that. He was firstly compassionate. He was secondly courageous. And thirdly, he was consistent. He was consistent. Now, you know Elijah, the first guy. He wasn't. He was a contrast. He wasn't very consistent. He was emotional. He was up and he was down. One minute, he's on the mountaintop challenging the prophets of Baal boldly and condemning them all. The next minute, he's running away from Jezebel, asking the Lord to take his life. Now, It's also somewhat encouraging that even through that instability, God still was able to use him, even though his personality was up and down like this. On the other hand, Elisha wasn't like that. I want to contrast that in your mind. Elisha just did what needed to be done. And when you study his life, you'll see the steady life of a steady eddy, a prophet. Now here's one The next one is going to surprise you. It almost sounds like, what? What is this doing in this message? How could this be a point? But here it is. Elisha, friends, was Christ-like. Elisha was Christ-like. Now, you may wonder, how could Elisha have been like Christ? I mean, Christ hadn't even come to the earth in the flesh by then. But when you look back into the history of Elisha, you see many things that are similar to the things that Christ did whilst he was on earth. It was almost like Elisha was a a picture 
of the coming Christ. So let's think about that. Here's a couple of similarities between Elisha and Christ. Now, firstly, their names are familiar. Elisha means my God is my salvation. And Jehovah means Yahweh will save. Now, two, both of their ministries started off where? In the River Jordan. Elisha takes up his mantle at the River Jordan. And Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan and begins his ministry. Third similarity would be they both raised an adult son of a woman from the dead. Elisha raises the Shumanite woman's son from the dead. And on the other hand, Jesus raises the only son of the widow at Nain in Luke 7.12. Both of them, Elisha and Jesus, feed large numbers of people with a small quantity of food. For example, Elisha feeds 100 men with 20 barley loaves and there was food left over in the Lord's inimitable fashion. Jesus, on the other hand, he feeds with five loaves and two fishes, 4,000 people and there's leftovers, and then 5,000 people and there's leftovers. Two separate occasions. Uh, They both turn a small quantity of liquid into an abundance. Elisha turns a small amount of oil into enough oil to fill every single vessel in the neighborhood. And Jesus, of course, turns the water into huge quantities of high-quality wine. A couple more, maybe. Both make things float that should normally sink. Elisha makes an iron axe head float to the top of the water, and Jesus walks on water and then invites Peter to come and join him. Both heal lepers. Elisha heals Naaman, and Jesus heals many lepers. So when you look at the life of these two men, Elisha is an Old Testament prototype picture of the coming Jesus in the New Testament. Many times I've said that the Bible is all about Jesus. He's not just in the New Testament, he's all the way through the Bible. And if you study the Old Testament carefully, you will see pictures of the Lord in the Old Testament before he's even introduced in the New Testament. So Elisha was characterized by compassion, he was characterized by courage and consistency and Christ-likeness. And now he's about to be called into God's holy service. So I want to talk about Elisha's call. Now, here's the most important part of what I want you to get. How did Elisha get to be where he was in God's plan? Well, he first appears on the scene in 1 Kings 19. And his story begins with a call from God. And I want you to notice how Elisha responds to God's call on his life because it's a pattern and an example for you and for me. So, first of all, Elisha responds immediately to the call. Elisha responds immediately. Elisha's call to God's service actually began on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. When God told Elijah, who was at that point sulking, 
He says this in 1 Kings 19.6. Get up and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mehalah, to succeed you as a prophet. So here's God's call. God's calling him to get up and confirm it. So Elijah was at that time in a very, very discouraging place. Remember that. He's gutted. And he was, as you know, thinking that there was nobody left who loved God or who was serious about God. And there's just him. But God told him, "Uh uh-uh, go get Elisha and anoint him as your successor. Now, this is no small thing. I looked this up. I like geography. And one of the things you find out was from where he was to Abel Mehlah, Sinai to there, was 150 miles. Now, that is some hall to walk. Now, the Bible says that in 1 Kings 19.19, So Elijah went from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. So, Let's be clear here. Elisha's call first originated with God. And God used Elijah to confirm it. So if we want to know how the Lord wants us to serve him, we need to seek to discern what the Lord desires for us. So here's a question for you. What do you think God wants you to do with your life? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever said, Lord, what is it that you want me to do with the short life that you've given me? Now, notice Elisha's response to God's call on his life was immediate. He left his ox and he ran after Elisha. Here's a picture. Elisha's out there plowing, just minding his own business. Actually, the fact that Elisha was using 12 yoke of oxen, that's 12 yoke, that means 12 times 2, 24 expensive animals, indicates to you and I that his family was probably better off financially than most other Israelites. And by the way, Elijah then, he's, he's, he's got his own business, his, his family business, and Elijah comes along and he says, hey, God has called you to ministry. And then he takes his cloak off and he throws his mantle on Elisha. And then Elijah just keeps on walking. Now, the throwing of the prophet's cloak around the person symbolized the passing of power and authority of the office to that individual. Elisha clearly realized the meaning of this act. And it's obvious from his reaction. Immediately, he started to abandon his former occupation and he ran after Elijah. He wants to make sure here that he didn't miss anything that God had for him. So let me just say this to you. When you hear God speak to you, sometimes he speaks in the quiet, still voice as you're reading the scriptures, the holy scriptures. Sometimes he'll speak to you by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you know it's God. But whenever God speaks to you, don't hesitate. When he says to do something, he prompts you, do it immediately. 
I don't want you to be the kind of person who listens to God's prompting and keeps pushing it off until tomorrow. And the sad thing is, tomorrow often never comes for many people. Maybe God's speaking to you today. Maybe he's been talking to you during this pandemic about getting your life right with God. See, something happens often when we're under pressure. And that makes us think more seriously about our relationship with our Creator. And Elisha responded immediately. But notice, he also responded thoughtfully. Elisha responded thoughtfully. When Elijah came to him, he said, you're the next man. And he threw the mantle on him. And then he ran after Elisha. Now, many questions must have been running through Elisha's mind at this point in time. He's probably thinking, what does this mean? Uh, what's going to happen to me? Dad had me planning for this business. 1 Kings 19.20 After he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Now that's an unusual reply, that last part. What have I done to you? And it's an idiom that means, well, that's fine. What have I done to stop you to do that? It was as if the prophet, though, said, don't act impulsively, sit down, count the cost, and before you commit yourself. And in his decision to follow Elijah, Elisha still honored his parents. That's great. He was thoughtful enough to explain to them what was going on in his life. I can sort of like imagine him in mind's eye, sitting down with his mum and dad, and probably his other siblings, and telling them how much he loved them, and thanking them for all that they had done for him up until this point in his life. I'm sure he asked them to pray for him in this new chapter of their life. And then I can imagine him hugging them and saying goodbye. What he was doing, he was thoroughly counting the cost and turning his back on his family's business. Elijah responded immediately, and he responded thoughtfully, and... He also responded decisively. Elisha responded decisively. This is the key to the whole account. 1 Kings 19.21 And he, Elisha, returned from following him, that's Elijah, and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and he went after Elijah and assisted him. So Elisha here, critical point, seals his decision by slaughtering the oxen and burning the plowing instruments. I'm sure there was other firewood that he could have used to cook this lot up. But he didn't. He slaughtered the oxen and he burned his plowing implements. And he hosted a farewell banquet so they could let everyone know what was going on. And what he did there, he'd be serving the sacrificed animals, big barbecue, to his guests for dinner. But it was also more than that. It was an offering of thanks to the Lord who chose Elisha to be his prophet. What an honor. Then he set out to accompany Elijah as his attendant. Notice, though, that Elisha cheerfully 
and with a great deal of satisfaction, leaves all to follow the call. He leaves all to follow the call. He was saying by his actions, I am going with God. I'm not going to come back to be a farmer and plowing. And there's no vacillating, no equivocating, no turning back. He was burning his bridges. So he leaves his past to find his future. And that is a principle found throughout the word of God. He leaves his past to find his future. It was a defining moment. No going back. So that attitude is so contrary, though, I notice, to the world's attitude in our culture today. Where many folks want to hedge their bets to keep their options open and as wide as possible. Not so with Elisha. He burned up his old lifestyle and he went on with God. He went for it. He got into the game for God. This week I was reading an extract from Erwin McManus who says, I'm not going to watch this life happen. I refuse to be the audience. Life is not meant for observation if you're going to live the life that God created you to live. In other words, get in the game. If you're going to be able to look back on your life and know that you've lived it without cause or regret, then refuse to stay behind. No one can make this shift for you. No one can create this change in your behalf. You have to stop waiting for someone to call you off the bench and put you in the game. You need to get up, refuse to remain on the sidelines any longer, and stop letting life slip through your fingers, grab hold of it, and refuse to let it go. I thought that epitomized the story of Elisha. He got rid of his past and he burned it so that he could now go forward. Now in these next few messages, as we look at the amazing things that this prophet did, they were able to be done because he wasn't hedging his options. He wasn't living with a stack of options. He was living with one purpose and that was only to please God. Now this sounds very similar to Jesus. One greater than Elijah has come and warns us against thoughtless discipleship, especially in Luke 14, 25 through 35. Look at this verse here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, bear his own cross. And come after me, cannot be my disciple. Did you know that the Bible says you can't be God's disciple and have a foot in one camp and another foot over there? And that is exactly what Elisha didn't do. He was fully committed. He made the decision and when God calls you to follow him, he wants to impress firmly upon you the need to examine your resolve to follow him. When Jesus issued this challenge, he was on his way to the cross to die. That's challenging. And it says to you and I, will you abandon 
the Christian life, will you flake out after a little while because you did not count the cost of commitment to Jesus? So what are those costs? What could they be? Well, frankly, Christians may face the loss of social status, being in the popular group. They may forego wealth. They may have to give up control of their money, their time, or their career. They may be hated. They may be separated from their family and even, as we mentioned last week, put to death like those 500 Christians in Ethiopia, let alone Eritrea. And by the way, Next week, we're going to take up an offering for the persecuted Christians that we talked about last week. So following Christ does not mean, friends, a trouble-free life. We must carefully count the cost of becoming Christ's disciples so that we will firmly hold to our faith and we won't be tempted to turn back. Luke 9 demonstrates this. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus here was pressing the radical claims of the kingdom above even the most fundamental of kinship obligations. So Jesus is saying, my response to God's call is the most fundamental obligation of all. Now, let me clarify something here. The New Testament does not advocate the renunciation of all family ties by Christians. The point here was about the priority of our commitment to Jesus, his work on earth, and his bride. So Elisha made a decision, and he followed through. Now, somebody asked, how do you become a Christian? Well, The answer to that is, you decide to follow Jesus. You come to the place in your life where you've realized you're a sinner and you need a savior. And perhaps you hear a message or you read something or somebody witnesses to you, but you make the decision to follow Christ. Question, for some of you listening today, have you made that decision? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Now, there's a famous story that goes with a famous hymn. I have decided to follow Jesus, and I wanted to share that with you now. May God's Spirit, as you watch this, disturb you. In 1904, revival swept across Wales. God made himself known in a very special and personal way. After the revival, a Welshman ventured halfway across the world to India and he trekked up the mountains towards a remote village in the east. He was told, go back. The tribe in that village are famously violent. But the Welshman ignored the warnings because even these savage headhunters should have the opportunity to hear about the mercy of God. One tribesman and his family heard the gospel and received Jesus as their savior. The good news was too good to keep to themselves, and they shared the gospel with others in the tribe. The chief was very angry. 
and he had the tribesman and his family dragged before the village. Stop following Jesus, the chief demanded. The tribesman replied, No, I have decided to follow Jesus. I am not turning back. The chief was furious and killed the tribesman's children. Stop following Jesus, the chief insisted. The tribesman replied, Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. The chief showed no mercy, and he killed the tribesman's wife. Now you will stop following this Jesus, the chief said. The tribesman looked the chief in the eyes and replied, The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. The chief could not believe his ears and he killed the tribesman. Jesus said, if a grain of wheat dies, it bears much fruit. And that day, many of the villagers who witnessed the persecution of that tribesman and his family also decided to follow Jesus. Even the chief himself became a follower of Jesus Christ. The tribesman's last words became the song of the village, and today it is sung all around the world. I have decided to follow Jesus. That's powerful. Many of us will never be asked to give our life in the physical sense, but we are clearly and directly challenged to make a robust decision. Will you live for Jesus as a living sacrifice? See, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he is calling you and me to follow through on your decision to live for Jesus Christ. And if you're listening and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would invite you to join me in prayer. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity today to challenge people to fully follow Jesus. I pray for those who have never put their trust in your son Jesus Christ as their saviour, that they will do that today. Friend, if you have decided to follow Jesus, why don't you pray along with me as I pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner and that I cannot save myself. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my heart and my life to you, and I receive you as my Saviour and Lord. Thank you for forgiving me, Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of my life, Holy Spirit, and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. For those who have made that decision and prayed that today, Father, I pray that they will affirm their decision and you'll help them tell someone who is a Christian what they've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you made that decision to follow Christ and have prayed that prayer, Jesus Christ will come into your life as he promised. Now, there's an email address that you can reach us at to acknowledge that you've trusted Christ. 
So please let us know so we can send you some information that will help you grow as a new Christian. God bless as we worship together.